0: Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide, Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. This is our second show for April 2016. We've paid our taxes. Now it's time to record the show. Let's bring in Jim, since he's on the run from the IRS. That's just a joke. Jim, how's it going?
1: You say it's a joke, Len. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. My new name is Montgomery Cliff.
0: (laughs) All right, Jim. So a couple of newsworthy news items before we get started the show. Number one. New maps were released for Disney's Hollywood Studios. Mm-hmm. Last week, apparently you could put them on a post-it note now. Did you know that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I get it. A lot of the back of the park is now behind the construction fence. A lot of the stuff that people love about the park is still up front and still running. I don't know if you saw the news, I think, broke late yesterday. That Remember how we were talking about how they probably weren't going to do the Tower of Terror guardians of the galaxy redo out here for walt disney world
0: yeah and it apparently i still need something to draw people over there right
1: yeah not only have they stepped away from doing this on the east coast the guardians of the galaxy but they've kind of doubled down on the theming for twilight zone tower of terror they were actually looking into putting a lounge in the exit area there's some space there that historically has been used for storage and that sort of thing i know how much you love the tequila place at mexico And it really is the same playbook. It's just, you know, take a storage space and turn it into what could be a very profitable venue.
0: Yeah, I mean, like has 53 seats. Mm -hmm. They could probably do something with a a couple dozen seats and still make it uh, super profitable, especially if they serve high-margin drinks. They have to go all in on the theming. It can't just Mm -hmm. be regular Disney cast members serving the same standard Disney cocktail menu. They got to go all in.
1: Supposedly, the folks who worked on the Edison over at Disney Springs may be involved in this. So we should anticipate a heavy level of theming and that sort of thing. Downside, however, is people getting liquored up and then going on Tower of Terror. Well,
0: technically, it's after the ride, but uh, but they could head over to a rock and roller coaster right after that.
1: That's right. I hope everybody can keep everything down because, oh, we're going upside down. (laughs) Any word on this opening? In the fine Hollywood Tower of Terror tradition, they're looking for the fall, ideally, with an, an event around Halloween. But first, they're going to get Disney Springs open. I'm hearing mid-May for the town center component. Okay. And then from there, it's just sort of turn and pivot on this project. Well,
0: the attraction be down. Will they build a the bar? Or they'll just be streamlined. And-
1: My understanding is no. As you're coming through the attraction, if your gift shops on the left and to the right is supposedly where they're going to try to do this.
0: Okay, uh, good.
1: All uh-huh. way just before uh, heading out, and so that way people could conceivably come in the exit and go straight to the bar. So it'll be on the right. That makes sense. Yeah, you could, you could technically
0: then just go go down towards the exit.
1: Okay. They don't want to lose any retail that they already have to accommodate this. I
0: wonder if they would make you exit through the bar and then the gift shop, because that <laughs> would be some forward thinking, James. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Moving on. Uh, and, and speaking of things that aren't moving on, Rivers of Light was supposed to open April 22nd. Now it is not. Disney posted a note on their blog last week saying, we're trying to get this thing done for the end of April. Unfortunately, we can't look for an update sometime into late May. That doesn't mean that it's going to open. In mid to late May. No, it means we're going to no. tell you when it's going to open sometime in mid to late
1: May. A couple of things I've been hearing about this, that they've had some tech issues. Yeah. Because sort of the first inkling that that was happening was when they had people in the park and they actually had the floats out on the water. Yeah, you knew something was up. Yeah. And normally Disney doesn't like to show the show before it's ready. In this situation, because they were still running and gunning and hoping to make the April 22nd, which is Earth Day and the anniversary of the opening of the park. Uh So, yes, there are some tech issues, but sometimes Disney will get a show up and running and and Uh stuff that they think works or at least works in the storyboard conception phase really doesn't work, at least from a story point of view. Oh, so you
0: think there are show element issues?
1: Well, actually, in, in a weird I've heard something genuinely intriguing. I mean, we're recording this show on Wednesday, April 13th. In two days the live action John Favreau version of Jungle Book Opens and I don't know if you've heard Len but Word of Mouth is really good as of this moment it's a hundred percent freshness at Rotten Tomatoes which is kind of unheard of they're actually at CinemaCon this week in Vegas sort of talking up what they'll be releasing for the next two and three years and they mentioned at the top of the show that Jungle Book's projected to make $70 million over its opening weekend, which is pretty impressive. But it's one of these things where it's like, okay, so let me get this straight. We have a hit film, live-action remake of our 67 film that features animals. Animals? And we didn't make use of this at all in Rivers of Light. (laughs) So evidently there's been kind of a hang on. Can we carve out a moment in the show? to bring in the Jungle Book. This isn't unheard of. You may remember in the various iterations of, of World of Color, they folded in mentions of new Disney features that are coming out, You know whether it's Marvel or Star Wars and that sort of thing. This seems to be what's behind this. There's a couple of numbers running around right now that I know for a lot of people who are planning on going down this spring – to see this show during its first couple of weeks of performances one friend at the parks cautioned me that the opening could be delayed as late as the first week of july
0: that's what i heard too and it would be crazy to try and uh, open it july 4th
1: don't be surprised folks if you do see a fairly big component of this show devoted to the new jungle book movie those who have seen the footage and what's been cut together at this point. A lot of this imagery that's used in the show was based off of the Disney nature films.
0: It does have that sort of look and feel to it. The wide angle, vistas, the camera setup looks a lot like a Disney nature film, but with, you know, cartoon
1: elements. But strictly from a business point of view, to base your big new nighttime theme park show on honestly the least popular film franchise that the company has at this point, Don't get me wrong. I I love the Disney nature's films. Personally, I appreciate the art and the craft of these things, but they just haven't done any business. Len, I mean, they come out, you know, they do 20 or $30 million and then just sort of fall off the table. And while it's good that Disney does these, That's not going to make the turnstile spin. So the fact that they suddenly have the Jungle Book emerging as this giant hit is something that they're kind of immediately pivoting on. And it's like, ooh, let's put that in there. We can use that to promote the show. And that gives them the additional time to sort of deal with these tech issues. Still a beautiful venue. other upside of this is it will give them time to sort of address the whole where the hell are these people queuing up issue. Right. (laughs) That still is a legitimate concern, Len. When you're doing two shows a night of 5,000 people in okay. that park, Joe Rody <gasps> deliberately built this park so it doesn't have a natural parade route. They right. had to rethink how Disney would do a parade on smaller vehicles to actually have a parade go through. And, anyone who's been there to see a parade knows that they lay down the piece of masking tape and you know you spend half the time going ooh ah at the floats and then ow ow because there's a bush sticking you in the butt.
0: Yeah I mean you're so close to the uh, to the parade vehicles you can actually change a spare tire if you had the right equipment while things going by you. It's, it's not like in the Magic Kingdom where you're 20 feet away.
1: So again to, to find places to line up 5,000 people who are waiting to get into the next show is going to be yeah. something of a challenge.
0: So. All right, Jim uh, real quick we're uh, going to leave the uh, Animal Kingdom and go back to the studios real quick. Uh, Disney released the Rogue One trailer mm-hmm. this week. Any word at all about whether any element of that is going to be in the studios? They need all the help they can get.
1: You will start to see Rogue One stuff come into that park probably in late August, early September. Okay. The studio is very, very, very high on this film. In fact, one of the worst kept secrets about Rogue One is that Darth Vader is in this movie. The teaser trailer that just came out really makes no mention of Darth Vader. But much in the case of how there was the teaser trailer for The Force Awakens, and then there was the trailer where everybody lost their mind because the final image, Chewie and Han, Chewie, were home. Yeah, yeah. The next trailer, folks, reveals that Darth Vader is in this thing. Ah. Watch the collective world lose its mind. Because, oh my God, Darth Vader. And this is not... Wounded Darth Vader. This is Darth Vader at the absolute height of his powers when he's the absolute scariest in the Star Wars universe. So there's some really cool stuff coming. So this is a film that once that drops, people are going to get really, really, really excited. You're going to see another wave of people go into launch bay deliberately to see this. And the other big news, while they have not officially revealed this yet, and I think they probably will not roll this out until... The model of Star Wars Lands actually debuts. But this thing has a name now, Len. It is? The Star Wars Experience. Not land, experience. Because the idea is that when you go into this incredibly immersive environment, or a planet on the Outer Rim that's a gateway to all the other words in the Star Wars universe, this is going to be an amazing experience. So why not just call it an experience?
0: You know, it's kind of literal in its name. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. All right. Maybe that's the trend here in the 21st century. Just call it what it is.
1: That's right. <laughs> Naked cash grab land. Come on.
0: <laughs> Maybe a little too literal, Jim. Okay, Maybe a little, okay. too literal. Back it up a little, bit. Just, just a little <laughs> okay, bit. Okay. A little more marketing. A little more marketing. There we go. All, right. So. All right. Let's move back to the animal kingdom real quick. Today's show is on the history of a well-known and well-loved attraction in the animal kingdom. It's one that gets you very, very wet. I am talking, of course, of Collie River Rapids. Mm-hmm. My experience with Collie River Rapids is, is this. When I think of the ride, I think of, mm-hmm. of two things. I think of the longest, most elaborate and detailed queue in the entire history of Disney theme Parks. And then two, getting really, really wet on a relatively short ride. Those are the two things that I think of when I think of this ride. What were the Imagineers going for?
1: Well, you know, normally you think about an attraction like this. Okay, so it opens at Animal Kingdom, March of 99. It actually missed the opening of the park due to they had to sort of concentrate their efforts on back of the house stuff. Because, again, you want the doors to lock in the gorilla pen. Yeah. You know, That's really the first thing on the punch list as opposed to, <laughs> well, you know, will the, <laughs> you know, well, the tigers run loose in the park? Because that'd be bad. Locks. Locks are at the top of the list. So, again, this opens in, in March of ninety nine. So you think, okay, they, they developed in the park and the early 90s so the idea for this thing must be five or ten years old right and it's like wrong this attraction if you really dig down into it goes as far back as the disneyland prospectus in 1953 really i kid you not this is from the original pitch for disney's wild animal kingdom theme park which in this thing that they, they focus grouped in June of 93, the attraction was described as follows. The Asian Safari, Targa River Rapids, will be completely different from the African Safari. It's a river raft ride. The Asian Safari will take guests upriver on a flexible river raft deep into the heart of a pristine rainforest. Exotic wildlife from Southeast Asia, leopards, orangutans, rhinoceroses, monkeys, and elephants live along the banks of the river amid towering trees and tumbling waterfalls. Now, you notice anything different from what was proposed, Len, to what was actually built? <sighs> Uh, animals for one thing. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know. Wow, that sounds great. What was, that, what was the original name of it? Tiger River Rapids. I love that name. The problem was, of course, that if you promise tigers, people expect to see tigers. You know, you know, the weird thing is that even back in Walt's day, you know, he wanted you to be on a boat. He wanted you to be looking at live animals. I mean, just want to cite the passages where the parallels are a little eerie. True Life Adventureland is entered through a beautiful botanical garden of tropical flora and fauna. Here you can see many magnificent plumed birds and fantastic fish from around the world, which may be purchased and shipped anywhere in the U.S. if you desire. <laughs> I want to pause there for the notion of, oh, honey, we need the toucan. Come on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just get me the samurai fighting fish. We'll carry it with us the rest of the day. It'll be fun. We'll we'll bring the monkey with us on the ride. There we go. There we go. Now, speaking of which, okay. A river borders the edge of True Life Adventure Land, where you embark on a colorful explorer's boat with a native guide for a cruise down the Rivers of Romance. Not a jungle cruise, a River of Romance. Things have changed. I get that. In this version, you were gliding through the Everglades past birds and animals living in the natural habitat. There are going to be alligators along the banks, otters and turtles playing. And the monkey you wanted to bring home, Len, he's up chattering in the orchid-filled trees.
0: I think no matter no matter what jungle you're talking about, there's always a monkey. All right, so this river ride is different than Jungle Cruise because, number one, you're in a a round inflatable raft, right? That was something that was relatively new to the theme park industry. It was like a late 80s, early 90s thing, right? Going from flume rides like Splash Mountain, which we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. to these sort of round rides where the big novelty with these round rafts was that the trench that you were in was wide enough and built in such a way that you didn't always take the same path down the river. You get to bounce around different ways, and that was sort of made made the ride more rideable. Jungle Cruise wasn't this.
1: Did Disney always envision this as that kind of ride? Disney doesn't develop its theme parks in a vacuum. In the the 1980s, whitewater rafting became popular as something to do in the Americas, and. Okay theme park operators just looked at this idea and, well, hell, we can do this in a controlled theme park environment. So the very thing you're talking about, about sculpting a trough and then putting the water pumps in in such a way that you you could have this controlled environment. You know, the weird thing is you take something... That's as exciting as whitewater rafting. and in fact, uh, Bob Wellbaum, again you know, the, the gentleman that you and I both work with, he was a whitewater rafting enthusiast for a long time didn't it's in that in fact one of the first books he wrote about yeah Bob was a, was
0: a whitewater rafting guide.
1: yeah uh, So the theme park industry takes a look at this and it's like you know this this truly outdoorsy exciting thing. It's like, wow, we can make this palatable for the folks who would never actually want a whitewater raft, who would never risk their lives. And so, you know, you saw this get walked out into the industry in the mid to late 1980s. Do the imaginers don't work in a vacuum? They pay very close attention to everything that goes on in the industry. And they saw how popular these things were. And the project that predated animal kingdom was disney's america one of the key parts of that park was native america and they had a lewis and clark raft ride and this was going to be disney's first whitewater raft ride the entire land was kind of built around they sort of do that oblong oval shape which is you know kind of the traditional this is how we do a whitewater raft ride because it then it makes it easier to maintain it also makes it easier if there were safety issues you're going to stand in for Sacagawea, get on this raft, and you know you go through this environment that represents what America was like back in the, the early, earliest days. And of course, everybody knows what happens with Disney's America. It didn't have the support that it needed from both the historical community and the blue bloods of Virginia kind of rose up and did the whole not in my backyard thing. Right. So the project got shut down, but Disney had done all of this work and this research on Whitewater rafts. And of course, here's Disney's Animal Kingdom coming along. And I think another thing people need to remember about Animal Kingdom, the whole notion was that when they were pitching this to the board and Joe Rody had to make three runs at the board before he finally get this thing approved, what ended up happening was that their early concerns were, why would we go after The animal theme park market, particularly in Orlando. I mean, we've got SeaWorld less than 10 miles away from property. And if you head over to Tampa, you've got Busch Gardens, Tampa Bay. And about the time that Disney was getting very serious about doing this, Anheuser-Busch had just bought SeaWorld and Busch Gardens from Harcourt Brace and Yovanovich. And was making all this noise about putting money into these two parks and and making them showcases for their brand. And it was Disney was like, why would we compete with these guys? They've already got a two decade jump on us and on the animal lover crowd. And, you know, all of our people come to Orlando for rides and attractions. I mean, that was the the hard lesson that they took away from Epcot. It's like, yeah, they come here to shop and eat, but they really want some rides, you know? In fact, as we were just talking about with Tower of Terror, if you think about it, that park opens in 89. Immediately, people came away from it and said, well, look, it was fun, but there's not enough rides. So there was this huge push to get a big ride in place for that park, and that was what Tower of Terror was. So anyway, to double back to Animal Kingdom... The, one of the ways that Joe sold the the park to, to folks is like, look, what we're going to do is have each land, whether it's Africa, Asia, Australia, whatever, will have a easily recognizable Disney theme park attraction in it so that people know, oh, it's animals and rides. You know, the Kilimanjaro Safari, it's a ride in an open truck through 110 acres of of animal enclosure, but let's remember how it originally ended. Suddenly you're being shot at by poachers and your vehicle speeds up and you drive through geyser field and your last moment is with a cute little animatronic elephant before you go to the offload area. So, you know, there was a real overlay of what Disney did best. Likewise, if they'd gone with the original plan for Tree of Life, in the very center of the park uh, it was basically going to be the world's largest version of the swiss family robinson house uh, you know it was supposed to be able to climb up the top of it there were going to be actual places where you could look out on the the 580 acre park in all directions and in fact uh, in the very first iteration of this there was going to be a restaurant up there we did Finally, get a Himalayan themed section with with Expedition Everest in '98 or thereabouts. But the original version you got in a sky bucket, like you know the old Skyway. Really? Yeah. And now you're going through a building, a huge refrigerated space where okay. you're supposedly climbing up the side of the Himalayas in in the sky bucket, and you'd pass through. One section that had Himalayan mountain goats and another section that had snow leopards. and as you, as you went to the mountain. Well, yeah. I mean, what they're using is the illusion of you traveling in a straight line through this building. But through the way they've canted the sets and that sort of thing and the, the way they, they sort of tease the ride vehicle, you think you're going up a mountainside. And, and so you pass this group of muskox.
0: There's a phrase I never, I never thought I'd do. There you go. This group of muskox. All right.
1: <laughs> All right. A blizzard comes up. They're like, okay, we're going to take you into a snow cave for shelter. Yeah. And it's only once you get inside the snow cave and there's a flash of lightning that you realize you are sharing the same space with the Abominable Snowman. Oh. And with the next lightning flash, you realize he's reaching out to you, but you're just passing out of the cave. And But that was the original take on it, rather than the, the Expedition That's- Everest coaster that we got. I mean, it was going to be this marriage of animal display and an attraction.
0: You can totally see how, through the beginning of Expedition Everest, where you go up that mountain and you pause for a second, and then there's that brief scene, Mm. Where the uh, the bird that no longer works uh, sort of comes towards you, and then you reverse. You can totally see how that could. have And you're you're in a cave apartment. You, you could you can see how that would have been the actual cave scene. That might have worked.
1: Yeah. Well, they did an awful lot of development on this side of the park. Remember, this was supposed to be animals that roam the earth today, prehistoric animals, and animals of myths and legend. and We don't even want to get into the Beastly Kingdom because that was supposed to be the coaster. Yeah. That was supposed to be Disney's first inverted coaster with Dragon Challenge.
0: I like the idea of doing a series of shows on Unbuilt Disney. We should, that we should say
1: that. Yeah, we definitely should circle yeah. back on that. We'd
0: we'll like to call it here in a second, but I, you, you actually said something here that I thought was really a great observation about the mm-hmm. layout of the Animal Kingdom. Every area of the Animal Kingdom, it follows the pattern: major ride, minor ride, and show. Mm-hmm. So, like, Africa is Kilimanjaro Safari is the headliner, the ride, right? Going back to your thing about guests knowing that there's a ride, a minor ride, which is either a johnny Forest Exploration Trail, or in Asia, it's the it's Kali or the other Maharaja Jungle track. and then a show. Africa's that way, Asia's that way, Disneyland USA is that way. Pandora won't be because it won't have a show at least to start with, but maybe they'll have character greeting or something else.
1: That's a, that's a really interesting pattern. You want to give people enough to do and a sense of value that if you think of how layered Animal Kingdom is between putting in small animal exhibits like, say, around the Tree of Life. The Discovery
0: Island Trails, yeah. Yeah. Which are fantastic, by the way.
1: They do a great job. But sliding back to the Jungle Cruise and, and the whole notion of Walt, you can't have live animals because they sleep during the day. They go hide in the shadows during the heat. It's not a good show value. But Walt still wanted to have animals in the park. So, you know, within the first six months of the park being opened, you see the Mickey Mouse Club Circus come in. Now, I know on our Disney dish shows, we've actually talked about this, but there's an incident lens that really colored how. Going forward, why Disney did what it did for with animals at the park. I don't know if we talked about this before. Disney actually went out and bought this collection of antique circus wagons and had them fixed up, painted for this parade. And so every day they would send the parade through the park toward the middle of the circus's run. They were using this for advertising because p- people just weren't attending the, the circus. They weren't going back to those tents back there. So this, this became a very crucial component of, hey, there's a circus at the back of the park and you should go there. Uh, among the wagons that's featured in this parade was the Hagen Split Wagon. If you've ever seen a movie of like a circus parade, it's literally a wheeled cage with a wooden partition down the middle. And to one side, they have one animal and the other side, they have another animal. What ends up happening is that on one particular day during the parade, on one side of the cage, they have a tiger. And on the other side of the Hagen split cage, they have a panther. These are two animals that are featured in Professor Keller's Jungle Killers show, which, which if you can believe it, is an act that went on before Annette and the Mouseketeers. I don't know how it happened, but during the parade, they are on Main Street USA. Somehow the tiger gets its paw under the partition and the panther now begins to chew the tiger's paw off oh. in front of the general public. Okay.
0: Nature, <laughs> <laughs> red, red, and tooth and claw. Yeah. You know, Come on, kids. Let's watch nature in go. action.
1: Okay, now I'm going to let Admiral Joe Fowler, who's the, the Disney legend, actually supervise the construction of Disneyland Park and Walt Disney World pick up the story from here. So so my boys <laughs> tackled that panther with two by fours in an effort to get him off of the tiger. Okay. By the time we finished, we had destroyed $15,000 worth of cats. Yes.
0: This now, is why there are no cats in Collier River Rapids.
1: <laughs> Seriously, this really colored how Disney oh, moved it, forward yeah. with animals in the park. You remember that napkin that he drew on for Walt Disney World and sort of laid out how he wanted the park to be with like Epcot dead center. Right, yeah. World Drive went right through, the, through Epcot. But if you look at that just to the left on the west side of Disney property, there's this oval shape that Walt has written on and designated Swamp Ride. Okay. He still doesn't want to give up on the rivers of Romance. He still wants to get people in front of real animals on water. But at the same time, Walt dies in December of 66, and Admiral Joe Fowler just can't, bring himself to do this he just remembers that panther he just and it's like and i'm gonna put people in boats and i'm gonna send them out into alligator infested waters and it's like no no i can't
0: do this. and most of them will come back probably so what happened so something happens between the late 60s and the the late 80s early 90s
1: he wants to honor his old boss's request and then he realizes wait a minute in the middle of bay lake Is an island, Raz Island or Riles Island, depending on which Central Floridian local you talk to. And it's like, wait a minute. We put the animals out there. We put them in cages. We create walkways. We create fences. We put some distance between the public and the flora and the fauna. And it's like, this is perfect. We'll do what Walt wanted us to do. We'll we'll show them some wildlife in a Disney theme park environment, and they'll be safe. Initially, when this place opened, it was called Treasure Island. It opened in April of 74. I think it was within a year or two, they realized that the pirate theming just wasn't driving people over there, so they renamed it Discovery Island. The terrible thing is that from the moment they opened this place, Disney cast members found themselves battling with the Central Florida wildlife. I mean, never mind the guests, the cast members found themselves battling. And what I'm talking about in specific land here are turkey vultures. Oh, really? Anybody who's been to Florida has seen these birds sort of wheeling through the sky. And what the turkey vultures did almost from the moment they opened, first they'd land and eat whatever food Disney laid out. And then they began to pick on the easier species to go after. In fact, they had five Galapagos tortoises on the island in an area called Tortoise Beach. And the turkey buzzers repeatedly go after the poor tortoises. They'd peck at their eyes. They'd go after their exposed limbs. So it really got ugly fast there. They had beached a faux wreck. It was supposed to be the Hispaniola from the Robert Louis Stevenson Treasure Island story. And then they had artfully laid out a plastic skeleton of a pirate who clearly been part of the wreck and died. And here is beach bones lying on the beach. And they put them out one day and the next day came back and the bones had been scattered across the entire beach. Cause a flock of Turkey vultures had landed dinners on. And it's like, what kind of cruel joke is this? This is plastic. You know, they kept, well, no, the next bone will be real. And it's like, no, it's not. After a couple of years of this going on, Disney had clearly had enough. And so they began this program of capturing and relocating the turkey vultures. And they did this to 150 of them, supposedly successfully. Well, as it turns out, they were, were... 19 habitual offenders of turkey vultures, they actually recognized that came back. And what they ended up doing, they would take these particular birds and there was a tool shed that they had backstage that they would actually hold the birds in before they'd relocate them. And in the case of the habitual offenders, maybe they let them stay in the storage shed a couple days, which an all-metal shed with no food and water in Central Florida. It didn't end well. And there were cast members who, look, they're turkey vultures. This is what turkey vultures do. And they were here first. I mean, we just built this place. Turkey vultures have been in Central Florida since the dawn of time. You can't blame them for a turkey vulture behaving like a turkey vulture. So somebody called the Florida office of the ASPCA. And after a two-month investigation in the summer of 1989, Walt Disney World found itself facing 16 state and federal cruelty to animals charges for the turkey vultures. It gets worse, Lynn, in January of 1990, the company had to pay a $95,000 fine, with the bulk of that going to the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission in exchange of getting all the animal cruelty charges dropped and to Avoid prosecution of the five Disney cast members who'd actually been the masterminds behind throw the turkey vultures in the metal shed and let them cook a live scheme. You know, obviously Disney got a really big black eye, especially among animal activists. During this period, you know, I mean, the company made commercials as part of this. Be nicer to birds, and it's like, yeah, okay, good. That's a good message, Disney. But Eisner was looking for some sort of grand gesture that would tell the world that look, we do actually value all creatures, great and small. You got to understand that. Rody now he's made two runs at the board already with his animal theme park for Florida and has been unsuccessful. And he's like, okay, dramatic gesture. Michael, do you know what's a dramatic gesture? I will give him a dramatic gesture. So this is the third pitch for Animal Kingdom theme park. The entire board is there because this is gonna be a $600 million project. Joe's standing at the front of the room showing a slideshow, talking about you know what the park's gonna contain. And suddenly the door to the boardroom opens. And in, I want to stress here, he was on a leash—a really flimsy-looking leash. I've I've been told from somebody who was in the room. Into the room comes a 400-pound Bengal tiger.
0: Ooh, that's a dramatic entrance right there.
1: Joe never acknowledges the elephant in the room. All right, the tiger in the room. All right, he just keeps going on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Meanwhile, everyone on the board is freaking out because this thing—the guy—is walking it less than a foot away from the back of everybody's chair, and so they, you know, they're all wow. sort of, you know, trying to pay attention, but at the same time, there is a tiger in the room. But the presentation winds down. The guy with the tiger on the leash just walks out the door, and and Joe says, "Look, this is what we want to do with this park. We want to put them as close to animals as they have ever been in their lives. These are exotic animals, and that's the whole hook for this park." It was a brilliant ploy. It worked. Everybody immediately signed on board for the project. So it now goes forward because of the fact that he had used the tiger to sort of close the deal for this park. Joe felt you can't just take this big cat and just stick in the corner. You know, the board saw this. They're going to expect me to do something really, really dramatic with tigers. So what does he do? They didn't actually officially announce the park till two years later on, on June 21st, 1995. So this is very early in the process, but this is like the way, the climax of Tiger River Rapids was described. Uh, the ride concludes in a place where man and animal now seek to live together in harmony. As our ride comes to an end, we see what was once a Maharaja's hunting palace, which is now the headquarters of Operation Tiger, a program to restore rainforest, which allows tigers to wander the halls of this long abandoned structure and live there once again. Your boat ride ends with you going by the tigers. Oh, interesting. Bengal tigers can jump over 20 feet, but since we must be at least 19 feet away from shore in that ferocious beast, don't worry, he's going to jump right over our boat. (laughs) (laughs) That's the animatronic tiger that's nailed to the shore. The hard reality is that in the real world, Tigers love water. Yeah, people, people don't mention that.
0: The other thing is, is to, in order to see the animals, the animals yep. have to be higher than you, which means they can actually jump longer. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> All right.
1: If you were a tiger, and there was this endless stream of rafts going by... It's like sushi on a
0: conveyor belt, Jim. No,
1: that's it, exactly. Wouldn't you <laughs> swim out occasionally, snag a plump tourist, and take him back to shore?
0: All right, so there are issues, right? So Roddy gets it approved, right?
1: Yeah, Roddy gets it approved, but now he's got to figure out... How to deliver on what he promised, which is what we'll get to in our next installment of the Cali River Rapids Saga.
0: Fantastic. All right. You've been listening to the Unofficial Guide at Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. We are produced by Aaron Adams. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.
1: Take care, guys.